Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The Ballet Russe was the most innovative dance company of the 20th century. Founded by Russian impresario Serge Diaghilev in Paris in 1909, the company propelled the performing arts to new heights through groundbreaking collaborations between artists, composers, choreographers, dancers, and fashion designers. The National Gallery of Art's exhibition, Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe, 1909-1929, When Art Danced with Music, on view from May 12th to September 2nd, 2013, showcases more than 150 original costumes, set designs, paintings, sculptures, prints and drawings, photographs, posters, and incorporates film clips in a theatrical multimedia installation. The exhibition was adapted from one conceived by and first shown at the Victoria and Albert Museum, the v in 2010. The gallery's Sarah Kennel provides an overview of the exhibition, followed by V&A's Jane Pritchard, who discusses the history and artistry of the Ballet Russe costumes in a joint lecture recorded on June 2, 2013. So the Ballet Russe was the most important cultural enterprise of the early 20th century, and some might say the 20th century. It not only transformed the future of ballet, but, the, but the, in the process inspired new forms of art, music, and dance, ushering modernism into our lives. In the lush, powerful spectacles like Scheherazade or Petrushka, Sylphide or Prince Igor or the Firebird, the company seemed to fulfill the composer Richard Wagner's dream of the Gesamtkunstwerk or the total work of art, a spectacle in which all elements, music, dance, design, were united in a common purpose and aesthetic. But the Ballet Russe did more than create a total spectacle on stage. Throughout its 20 years of existence, the company kept pace with the myriad modern art movements of the teens and 20s, from decorative abstraction and art nouveau to cubism, futurism, surrealism, neoclassicism, constructivism, and beyond. And it is this story, the dance between art, music, and movement, that our exhibition at the National Gallery aims to tell. The Ballet Russe was founded in 1909 by Serge Diaghilev. He was born in 1872 in Perm, um, a city in the northern Urals. But as a youth, he spent much of his time in St. Petersburg, where his family lived off the fortunes of a vodka distillery. Uh, He grew up in a cultured household. Um, He absorbed music, poetry, the visual arts, literature. Um, He studied music and singing quite seriously and had um, actually considered a career as a composer, but his teacher told him essentially that he had um, not a little talent. Um, So then he went to law school. Uh, (laughs) Apologies to the lawyers in the audience, for there are many. Um, But even though he went to law school, he knew that his future was somewhere else, and um, he had a strong sense very early on that his talent actually lay not in a particular creative endeavor, but in recognizing the talents of others and bringing them together. Um, But it also lay in his enormous ambition and drive, and his first foray into being a cultural entrepreneur occurred um, when... uh, really at the turn of the century when he founded Mir Iskutsva, um, or co-founded Mir Iskutsva, a journal, um, which means, sorry, I uh, thought I had a slide here, but he founded um, 
co-founded a journal called Mir Iskutsva, which means World of Art, and this was part of a larger movement, the World of Art movement, which sought really to raise the standards of modern art in Russia, but also bring Russian art and Western European art in dialogue. And the journal was really Russia's first modern art journal. Um, he curated many exhibitions, incredibly um, ma- a mammoth exhibition of Russian historical portraits, um, and also brought Russian art to Western um, European consciousness in 1906 when he organized the Exposition de la Russe um, at the Salon de Tom in Paris, where the first time, for, for the first time, contemporary Russian art was seen side by side with contemporary European art. In 1907, he staged um, the first season of Russian opera in Paris, and in this venture, he was still working under the aegis of the Russian imperial administration. Um, And during this season, he brought uh, one of the most famous opera singers in the world, Fyodor Chaliapin, to the stage in splendid productions like uh, Boris Godunov. Uh, and this was an incredibly sumptuous spectacle. I think it's evident from the costume, which perhaps Jane will tell you about. But um, we have this, when you can see um, Charlie Eppin's costume there, um, very intricate details of pearl and um, silk um, and uh, fur, and really uh, communicates the splendor and even perhaps decadence of the Russian Empire. Um, while these were full-scale operas, they also included dancers, um, from many from the Russian Imperial Ballet. And after two very successful but expensive seasons of Russian opera in Paris, Diaghilev decided to take, his, to take a new direction. From opera to ballet is but a step, he quipped, and of course, it was also less expensive to stage. The first season of the Ballet Russe... The first season of the Ballet Russe um, premiered in the Théâtre du Châtelet in Paris, and it was an absolute sensation. Um, Ballet was not the obvious genre for the creation of a startling new aesthetic. Um, By most accounts, ballet in France at the end of the 19th century had devolved into codified styles and pastiche narratives, offering little more than the opportunity to savor shapely legs. Yet, by bringing together the choreography of Michel Fauquin, a classically trained dancer who sought to free the body from the conventions of traditional ballet and and expand its expressive capacity with the sensitive designs of an artist like Alexandre Benoit um, and using high art music such as Chopin um, or in other productions like Firebird introducing new Russian composers like Stravinsky to the stage, the company reinvigorated ballet as a high art. I mean, here is a wonderful costume from Les Sylphides. I think it's the only surviving costume um, from the production, Jane will perhaps correct me on that, um, starring Nijinsky and Anna Pavlova. And of course, these productions also launched the careers of many stars. And really, um, part of the appeal of the Ballet Russe was um, these star dancers. Benoit's most famous production, um, uh, there's also a lovely set design. And you can see here, too, one of, one of the kind of fun um, perhaps ironies of the Ballet Russe is that it not only brought a lot of Russian spectacles to the stage, but it also kind of revitalized the French Romantic tradition. So it took a Russian company in the 20th century to revive the French Romantic Ballet for the French. Um, perhaps uh, Benoit's most famous um, production is Petrushka, a, a ballet that is um, still, of course, danced today um, with great music by Stravinsky. And I think you can get a sense, even just in the set design here, for the Butterweek Fair, which is kind of a pre-Lenten fair in, 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 
that Benoit remembered from his youth in St. Petersburg, um, the sense of uh, spectacle and scale um, combined with um, the tremendous um, dance dancing of all the dancers, but in particular Nijinsky, who played Petrushka, the figure of um, a puppet trapped in his wooden body but experiences human emotions. And it really is um, a ballet about the tragicness of consciousness and what it means to be trapped in sort of the material body. Um, these sketches are, for me, um, among the most poignant um, objects in the exhibition, perhaps the least um, spectacle-like, um, but they were made by Valentin Hugo um, watching Nijinsky dance, and I think that you can even see in the way that the line sort of communicates the jerkiness of the body, and she really gets um, his, the expressive power of Nijinsky's ballet. In many of the early um, productions, the company really deliberately um, cultivated its Russianness as exoticness, exploiting a European conception of Russia as the exotic East. And Tiaglev was very canny about this. He knew that his audiences came to see the Russian ballet, and by that they meant something sort of spectacular, powerful, exhilarating, and different. They got it in the opera Prince Igor and the famous dance sequence from it, the Palazzian dances. Um, this is a tale of whirring straw. Slavic tribes in medieval Russia who eventually make peace through a wedding of members of each tribe. Um, but the real impact here was um, both costuming, and we see Nicholas Rorick's amazing costumes um, for the warriors um, on, on your right with these incredible colors of pink and green and purple, but also the use of ikat silk fabric, which he had purchased in a market in Uzbekistan. This attention to a kind of ethnographic authenticity is new. Um, these are real departures from traditional ballet costumes. And um, the costume itself also allowed for greater freedom of movement, which this ballet really exploited. One of the great innovations of the ballet was actually the importance given to the core. Um, rather than being just kind of background, they had a very powerful role. Of course, this was a ballet about tribal movements. Um, but you can see also in the sculpture by Fredman Cluzel the sense of, um, of exhilarating power and also the fact that it was being danced by men. We tend to think that Nijinsky is the person who revived the male dancer, but really the company as a whole um, made male dancing very exciting in the early 20th century. Um, the company um, did not just uh, sort of excel in Russian um, spectacles, but also more broadly um, capitalized upon a European fascination with Orientalism, one that has a long history in Western and particularly French culture. Um, the production of Scheherazade, of course, was the ballet designed by Leon Bach. You see his costume and costume design there for the chief eunuch. This is a ballet set in a harem, and it's a lascivious tale of sex and death in which the sultan's favorite has a dalliance with a golden slave danced by Nijinsky. Um, and the sultan comes home and finds out, and all of um, the harem girls are murdered, and she herself commits suicide. Um, yes. Um, but you can see here um, that the incredible use of color, um, and particularly, um, and there is, of course, Nijinsky in his famous golden slave um, costume, 
Um, you can see that the use of color by Box, the use of um, fabric such as silk, the patterning, his interest in um, Eastern design, um, it transformed not only ballet but actually saturated um, Parisian culture in general, um, sparking other uh, artists but also fashion designers like Paul Poiret to design their own line of, I would say, Box-inspired wear and even house designs. And Box was an equal opportunity orientalist, venturing even into um, Hindu myths with the ballet like the Blue God. And we see an incredibly intricate costume here, um, which mixes kind of vaguely South um, Asian influences. Um, of course, the star of the Blue God, um, a ballet that otherwise um, was not particularly well received, was um, Nijinsky. And uh, he really did um, play a huge role in making the Ballet Russe incredibly exciting um, for audiences. Uh, and um, we, in the exhibition, have dedicated kind of a section to the cult of Nijinsky that arises. Um, Nijinsky was not only a technically brilliant dancer, but also had an incredible talent for mimicry. He was chameleon-like and could portray um, Characters, um, bodies, both masculine and feminine, by turns, and I think that the the sort of ability of Nijinsky to uh, appeal to many different artists and viewers, but also even to appear differently on stage, is is um, captured by the comparison of these two works in the exhibition. Um, the small but very powerful sculpture by Rodin, Nijinsky, who's crouched sort of tensely, um, about to explode. He looks animal-like. And the very um, refined and beautiful and almost fey Nijinsky portrayed by Jacques-Emile Blanche in his costume for Les Orientales. And here, again, are two other renditions in Nijinsky, Le Spectre de la Rose, um, one of the favorite ballets um, of, of the early seasons, um, in which Nijinsky is, portrays this um, spirit of the rose, flits about on stage in um, a very light costume. And this was a ballet in which really his, his ability to kind of merge masculine and feminine on stage um, shone through. And of course, um, offstage as well, um, the ballet was becoming, with, with Nijinsky as Diaghilev's lover, and Diaghilev is very open about his sexuality, ballet becoming more and more of a kind of um, place where homosexuality was tolerated, if, if not always celebrated. Um, interestingly, um, I think I lost my afternoon of fond slide. Um, Nijinsky was a great technical dancer, um, but as a choreographer, he chose to renounce many of his gifts um, of leaps and jumps and turns um, to try his hand at something new. And in the exhibition, we have a section devoted to his first choreographic work, The Afternoon of a Fawn, and it's striking for how restrained and stylized the movement is, both of the dancer, the fawn um, dance originally by Nijinsky, but also all of the dancers, the nymphs. And then, of course, in... Um, a year later, in 1913, Nijinsky with Stravinsky and Rurik conceived of the Rite of Spring, um, one of the most um, complicated and still compelling works of modern culture. Um, this was the work in which ballet and modernism truly collided. Um, 
It was probably conceived by Rurik, but Stravinsky always likes to claim, claim credit for it. And here we see Nicholas Rurik's costumes, which I, I imagine Jane will talk to you about a little bit. Um, but this is a primeval tale of sacrifice to ensure the coming of spring. The costumes themselves were highly innovative, and Rurik's studies of uh, peasant dress and archaeology played a role in his designs. Um, but perhaps the most difficult and rebarbative um, part of, of the performance um, was the dancing, the music as well, with Stravinsky's um, dissonant polyphonic score that was described by one critic as grinding and shrieking like laboring metal. Um, Nijinsky's dancing, and its choreography, excuse me, he didn't dance in the ballet, um, was equally difficult. One critic um, accused him of committing a crime against grace. And in many ways, the ballet was the antithesis of everything that ballet had been up to that point. Instead of um, being turned out, dancers were turned in. Instead of the emphasis being on lightness and ballon, um, the dancers were turned sort of stamping, pounding on the ground. They were supposed to land with straight legs, which you're never supposed to do because it makes a big thump, and dancers are not supposed to thump, but here they did. Um, These dissonant and fractured and difficult forms were defiantly modernist, and I think it's no wonder that um, avant-garde painters started to look to the ballet at this moment and see in it something akin to their own experiments with modernism, which is why um, I was very pleased to be able to include Fernand Léger's painting, Exit the Ballet Russe, which was actually 1914. Sorry for the typo there. Um, In his violence and intensity and total repudiation of all previous aesthetic forms, the Rite of Spring incited a riot on the opening night. And of course, it's since become one of the avatars of modernism. I'll just note that it um, it celebrated its 100th anniversary um, last May 29th, just a few days ago. And it remains a touchstone for our understanding of the radical nature of the avant-garde in the early 20th century. Um, It's also spawned numerous progeny. probably 200 versions of the Rite of Spring at this point. I'm not quite sure. Um, but Nijinsky's career as a dancer and choreographer did not last much beyond the Rite of Spring. Um, in 1913, um, Diaghilev's lover um, suddenly married uh, an aspiring dancer. Um, and for Diaghilev, who ran the company with equal parts of charm and tyranny, um, the personal and professional were inextricable, and he dismissed the star dancer in a wounded rage. Uh, there were other changes afoot in the teens. During the war years, Diaghilev, um, the company, uh, sort of reduced in size. Many of the dancers um, left, and they could not um, perform in, in many countries in Europe. Um, so they were somewhat of an itinerant country. Um, but Diaghilev tapped two new artists and a new choreographer to sort of reinvent the aesthetic of the ballet russe. Um, Leonid Massin became the company's next choreographer, and Nijinsky... Uh, Diaghilev's next partner, um, but also two new artists, Natalia Goncharova and Mikhail Larionov, brought a powerful new aesthetic to many of the ballets, one which fo- fused elements of Russian folk, sort of folk art, um, with the lessons of Cubism and Futurism that they had sort of rapidly absorbed in Moscow in the first decade of the 20th century. And their designs and Massin's choreography, which um, brought character dancing to new heights, um, were perfect complements to each other in many cases. 
Um, and here I'm just showing you um, Larry Neff's designs for the ballet shoot or the tail of the buffoon with the costume itself. It's also a wonderful chance in the exhibition on occasion to compare a costume design with the um, execution. Um, there's frequently differences or um, things that come out in the costume um, that we don't see in the design and vice versa. But you also see sort of um, the care in which um, these costumes are thought through, and Jane will talk much more about that. Um, of course, one of Goncharova's great achievements was the backdrop for the fire, 1926 production of the Firebird. Um, and uh, that's also a signal of Diaghilev's kind of incessant search for the new, um, that uh, many, many times uh, the, the ballet, for example, the Firebird, premiered in 1910 with sets and other sets and um, costumes, but um, in the 20s, Diaghilev decided that he wanted to redo the ballet, and rather than just repainting the same sets, he often commissioned new artists to do new things. Um, I hope you all have a chance to see this if you haven't seen it yet. It's the largest work of art that we've displayed here, and it really is a beautiful backdrop, one that evokes the splendor of a Russian imperial city. This was the coronation scene for the ballet, the Firebird, but also, I think, shows us um, Goncharova's kind of very modern sense of space with this almost accordion-like um, depiction of, of these um, buildings packed together. Um, and here's just um, a photograph from the V&A, just giving you a little taste of some of the logistical um, um, challenges um, of, of mounting works like this in an art museum context. Um, and some of Goncharova's other designs are really quite wonderful and whimsical. Um, Diaghilev's um, appetite for the new was insatiable, and in 1917, I'm just going to skip this, he turned to Picasso, who, along with Jean Cocteau, Eric Satie, and Leonard Messine, cooked up Parade, um, the first ballet to feature Cubist designs and costumes, with characters ripped from popular culture and a score that included the sounds of a typewriter, foghorn, and bottles. Parade was defiantly contemporary, a statement not only about the company's cutting-edge identity, but also about the avant-garde's willing to set its fortunes alongside dance. I think I have, there are some designs from Parade. And um, there's one of the Cubist managers. Um, and soon enough, other members of the international avant-garde followed um, Sonia and Robert Delaunay for um, the ballet Cleopatra, and Henri Matisse, among others, clamored to design for the ballet Russe. Um, but Diaghilev's restlessness in the 1920s um, pushed him into new territory again um, with uh, engaging artists like Giorgio de Chirico to create the surreal-influenced um, costumes and designs for the Ballet Le Bal, um, in which he transfers, transforms bodies into architecture and stage sets into kind of uncanny collisions of past and present. Um, and, um, of course, uh, also another direction in the 1920s was the embrace of modern life ballet, or what's been called lifestyle modernism, um, with ballets like Le Tremble, choreographed by Nijinska, the sister of Nijinsky, and an important dancer and choreographer in her own right. The ballet um, uh, opened with an overture curtain um, based on a painting by Pablo Picasso. This is also in the exhibition in which we see these two robust classical nudes kind of charging across this um, strange 
strange, uh, barren beach landscape. But then the ballet opens, uh, and there's just a scale shot, um, with the very modern, sleek um, costumes designed by Coco Chanel. And the ballet itself, of course, was all about modern life on the Riviera. Um, and the choreography took its influence and its inspiration from movements in sports. So you see jumping jacks and push-ups and little kicking legs of swimmers. Um, and the, the 1920s brought another important choreographer to the Ballet Russe. Um, that, of course, is George Balanchine, uh, the Ballet Russe's last great choreographer and America's first. Um, and uh, he, two of the um, works that he choreographed for the Ballet Russe course, remain um, important in, in the repertory of, of ballet, Apollo, or Apollo Musaget, um, and here you're seeing a photograph of the 1928 production with Danilova and Serge Lifar, um, and then also The Prodigal Son with um, wonderful backdrops by Georges Rouault, and um, I'm just going to show you, we're going to try here for our final brief clip of dance. Um, I just wanted to show you some of the, well, we got the music. Oh, there we go. What Balanchine does is, is um, strip dance in a way of, of pantomime and mimicry and um, make emotion carry through the abstract languages of line and movement, um, exploring the design possibilities of the body. And this is the prodigal son. Sorry, didn't get... One of the other great ballets he choreographed for the company. So there you have sort of, you know, a little bit of balancing in a nutshell, the femme fatale, the legs entwined, the incredibly sort of beautiful abstract design of the body. Um, and in a way, Balanchine is sort of the most modern choreographer and also the most classical of the ballet russe. But Balanchine, um, who's so important for ballet in America, also brings us back to the question of the legacy of the ballet russe. It's very hard to sh sum up. I've shown you only a smattering of the um, works produced during the 20 years of the company's existence, which includes something like 100 ballets. And our exhibition really is only a very partial accounting of the ballet russe. Um, different exhibitions focus on different um, aspects. Um, but the legacy is sort of all around us. The company, um, and then it's sort of uh, companies that came in the wake of the Ballet Russe, in particular the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, not only spread the choreography, some of which survived, some of which didn't, um, to all corners of the world, um, but also seated many of the dance companies, um, San Francisco Ballet, New York City Ballet, but many companies in Europe as well, and um, many of the ballet teachers, um, I know many, many people whose um, own ballet teachers um, were ballet russe dancers or ballet russe to Monte Carlo dancers or trained with them. Um, doing this for 20 years was an extraordinary feat by any measure, but even more so when we recognize how many great talents were involved. Fokin, Stravinsky, Picasso, Delaunay, Kirko, Bakst, Nijinsky, Nijinska, Goncharova, Massine, Chanel, Matisse, Balanchine, and so on. And I think Diaghilev's great gift was to convince those around them, artists of all stripes, musicians and dancers, to work together to create something new, something bigger than what each could accomplish individually. He did so through a combination of tenacity, passion, charm, and tyranny. Um, but even with the occasional flops and failures and fights, the ballet russe transformed modern culture. 
I will now turn the podium over to Jane Pritchard, who is the curator of dance at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And it's her exhibition in 2010 um, that really um, was the, the, the basis for our exhibition, of course. Please welcome Jane. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be here, so I'm delighted to have been invited. The first question I'm always asked is, well, how comes they survive? Um, They survived uh, partly by use and partly because they were put into store. Um, Many of the costumes were sort of, if the productions were short-lived, they were put into hampers, uh, probably carted around the world for a certain extent, but largely put into store. Some costumes were passed on to the second generation of Ballyroos companies, uh, and after the de Basel company folded, a large number of costumes were stored in Paris. In 1967, uh, there was an auction at Sotheby's that included a small selection of costumes uh, and the photograph of Marie Rombert wearing... Is this going to point to the right? Here we are. Um, uh, uh, wearing uh, Lubov Chernysheva's costume from Pardassier uh, is a result of one of the um, soirees uh, at which uh, n- a number of dancers from the Ballet Russe were invited, along with uh, the cream of society, including Princess Margaret, um, to raise an interest in this. Um, and then, as a result of that and the success of that exhibition, uh, the gentleman uh, in Paris... Uh, came forward and said, well, I've got lots of costumes. Um, Rather than paying to store them, how about we sell them? Uh, And that also included sets. He had offered them to companies, but uh, no companies sort of took him up. The uh, auctions were major events. They were held in theatres. And so there you see the auction of the Trambler cloth. um, And in front of it, one of the students from the Royal Ballet School modelling the costume for Floor from the Ballet Zephyrin Floor. And so these, there were four major auctions, and then one, from then on there are a whole series of auctions relating to particularly Ballyroos material, but also other theatrical material. The last of the run of um, auctions was held at the Chenille Galleries in the King's Road. This is very much the era of swinging 60s and uh, swinging London, uh, and it really was get your hippie outfit here. <laughs> As you can see, um, these two costumes are these two costumes that we only acquired in the run-up to the exhibition. Uh, and at the opening of the exhibition at the V&A, um, somebody was overheard saying uh, of this costume, I was wearing that when I met my first boyfriend. <laughs> so these, these, a lot of these were, I mean, people wearing Matisse dressing gowns um, at this point. Uh, and then we have the instance of Nadia Norina, who bought three of the Nijinsky costumes in the first auction um, and created a Nijinsky room in her house. Now, her display of the costumes like that won't have done them any good at all. Um, and the Dieu Bleu costume then went on display in the amphitheatre at the Royal Opera House for about 20 years. It was wonderful to see it, but that certainly didn't help. Anyway, um, that's really just to give you a sort of bit of background. Um, fortunately, Richard Buckle uh, was very aware of the importance of the Ballet Russe, having himself mounted a very famous exhibition in 1954, um, and uh, he was the one who was instrumental in acquiring so much material for Britain. Uh, the Ballet Russe actually gave 
45% of all performances in London and half of their whole output in Britain. Um, so I think one can say that, you know, it is hugely, hugely important uh, for us. Um, so we do have uh, Richard Buckle to thank uh, for our wonderful collection. He did have intentions of setting up specific mu- uh, uh, museum of uh, performance but ultimately it was deemed more appropriate that the material came under one banner and the BNA was the winner. But I just want to remind you, when we look at costumes, when we study costumes, and I think it's an area that is undervalued, we don't use the history that comes from costumes enough, uh, there are a number of things that we have. We have the actual costumes. I've put there a, a costume designed by André Deran, probably the fine artist who was the best theatre designer of the lot, totally ignored in the current exhibition, I'm afraid, um, but a great passion of mine. Um, so that's the costume for the Can-Can dancer. Um, we have the actual designs, and here we have a costume design by Juan Gris uh, for when Dapis and Chloe was being redesigned in the 1920s. Heavy annotations to help the costume maker, um, so actually to interpret what was on the paper and turn it into a costume. Uh, when we're studying costumes, we do have photographs of the dancers in the costumes. And when you look at the early souvenir programs for the Ballet Russe, a lot of the co- photographs are essentially photographs of dancers in costumes. That's what's being recorded. It's Bach's wonderful costumes in particular that they want. Yes, the star dancers are there, and sometimes they're wearing the costumes, but we get a whole range of dancers being portrayed because they wanted to show us the costumes. Um, we also get illustrations, and illustrations Illustration is an area that really has not been properly looked at for the Ballet Russe. Uh, in this instance, it's um, working drawings by Ethelbert White. Um, there's one of his prints uh, of Parade in the exhibition. Uh, and uh, the British uh, bookseller and historian uh, Cyril Beaumont had a number of British artists go backstage, study the costumes and create souvenirs. And the working materials for that, as well as the end products, are wonderfully informative. And then we also have documents. In this case, uh, it's a receipt from the Costumier Muel in Paris, which was the first non-Russian costume house to work with Diaghilev. So I'm just sort of flagging up. There is a wealth of material that can be used, and all of this helps us to understand uh, the uh, the ballets. One of the things is that with costumes, the dancers have to be able to move in them. The movement that is possible within a costume can be so informative. All right. Um, So I just, again, want to remind us that um, the costumes are not necessarily always in wonderful condition when we get them. Uh, They have to go through conservation before they can go on display. There you see conservation of the costume for Boris Gudinov, and that emphasizes the wonderful lining. One of the things you never see in exhibitions is really the inside of the costumes, and they're so interesting. Mounting uh, the, the costume, uh, very important how you sort of display it. Great discussion goes into what sort of mannequin we will use. Uh, mannequins in the studio, ready to go on exhibition. In fact, that's for um, the exhibition that Shen was responsible for, those of you who were here yesterday, the Groningen exhibition, they're lined up there for. But also the inside of the costumes have a story. Um, they have custom stamps. They have names of who uh, wore the costumes. Uh, in this instance, I'm just showing you the inside of a costume that was bought by Diaghilev from the Bolshoi for Swan Lake. Um, and so there's a whole history that you will find living inside a costume. Uh, 
and then sort of how a costume can be brought more or less back to life. There we have one of the costumes by Matisse for Chant du Rossignol, um, a conservator working on it. This was her favourite costume to work on. Um, but it was not only the actual costume, it's also the headdress that had to be totally re- re-blocked, basically, um, to put it back to, to, to life again. And here we have making costumes, very little written um, uh, contemporary about the wardrobe. Nowadays, backstage at the ballet is something that fascinates reporters, but uh, it didn't seem to in the past, really. Um, And this is the only photograph I know of actually a costumier genuinely making um, costumes. These are for The Sleeping Princess, 1921. Um, The far side, we see the costume for the prince in the hunting scene, and there it is uh, actually in the photograph. And the whole sort of backstage life with the dressers working alongside the dancers. But just to remind you, before the Ballet Russe, costumes um, uh, and the ballets, here's just a a little collection. Um, We had uh, women playing men, so performing on Travesty. This is at uh, Popular Theatre, the Alhambra in London. My main picture is the snow scene from The Trip to the Moon, uh, a fairy. Um, this is Offenbach. Um, and this is the, the start of snow ballets. So all of you who know uh, your nutcracker, uh, going to the, the snow scene there, it comes out of this. Um, uh, they became a real vogue for snow ballets. Uh, but the traditional tutus that the dancers are wearing, um, these sort of more or less sort of plate, but rather longer than plate at this point, um, sort of costumes. Uh, we have Kuczynska at the Imperial Ballet, very short tutu, showing off her legs, quite stocky legs, her dancing um, uh, goat, of course, uh, her tambourine, and then her personally acquired per, um, uh, diamonds. So sort of thinking about how and those costumes, they were, um, the tutus were quite heavily boned, so they're almost like corsets that the dancers are wearing, which does restrict the body quite considerably. Uh, but I've also included there Anna Pavlova, uh, less boned um, tutu, um, actually made by uh, an amazing woman, Madame Magna, whose role within the uh, making of, uh, and the development of the tutu uh, is something that does need to be looked at. So then sort of changing and then uh, moving to um, Les Sylphides very much, um, as you were told earlier, an homage to the Romantic Ballet, uh, one of the two most successful ballets created for the Ballet Russe, um, and of course amongst the works that was actually performed in Washington. Um, but here we're sort of beginning to get a sense of evolution of costumes. If you say Les Sylphides to most people, you say Romantic Ballet, we know it's a bell- bell-shaped skirt, they're going to have little wings on the back. Oh, they're all the same, aren't they? Well, no, they're not. Um, when you start looking at how they differ, um, we have Lepokova's costume, which is indeed the only one that survived. It was given by Lepokova to Cyril Beaumont. But actually, if we start here, this is the costume as worn in the Imperial Ballet. It's a much fuller body, it's a totally different shaped sleeve. Um, the early costumes for Diaghilev have these double wings, um, but by the time you get to the 1920s, we've got a single, much larger wing. And, of course, costume will always reflect the fashion of the day. So look what's happened to the headdress. It's become a little band. We're going into Gatsby here um, in terms of the way it's being presented. So costumes change throughout the period um, that we're looking at and over time. You've already heard a little bit about um, uh, Prince Igor. This was the most popular work in terms of number of performances for the Ballet Russe. It was performed at a quarter of all of Diaghilev's performances. Now, if that's not success, I don't know what is. Um, But again... uh, 
originally using the uh, ikat fabrics uh, from Uzbekistan uh, to either actually just sort of off the peg use the, the fabric and just slightly alter the costume, um, oh, sorry, or in the case of um, uh, the men, really much more adaptation. I love the fact you can see up here these costumes worn by a number of different dancers. If you go and look at the costume, you see a press stud on display. They, we, we had to decide where we, which, which dancer we were fitting it to in terms of the mannequin. The men's trousers, of course, get changed over and over again. This was, as was mentioned, a very vigorous dance. Uh, the men drop to their knees. They're, they're leaping around. Of course they wore out. When you start looking at the photographs over time of Prince Igor, you see some very funny trousers. Um, but I think that this, this is an American photograph. Again, um, Prince Igor very much performed throughout America, indeed also in Washington. Um, and there we have Adolf Baum's costume. Um, we're showing you the back there because the front is really quite seriously damaged. Um, and that's one of the very earliest action photographs taken in Budapest. So I'm going through some of these sort of quite quickly, um, but I want to sort of give you a sense of uh, evolution of some of those costumes. To me, this is one of the most important costumes in the exhibition. Um, it was worn by Nijinsky in 1909, the first night of the Ballet Russe in the Ballet Le Festine. Le Festine was a divertissement, so this is a series of different uh, sections, just like when you get to the greatest hits of the ballet uh, these days, so those sort of programs of highlights. Um, and essentially the dance is um, the bluebird pas de deux from The Sleeping Beauty. Um, so this costume, which is very, very heavy, was worn by Nijinsky as he flew across the stage. How any dancer did it, I don't know. Any dancer today would turn around and say, no, I'm not wearing something like that, it's far too heavy. So I really think it's an amazing uh, sort of item. Um, very worn, and I'm sure Nijinsky wore this costume whenever he danced the work through to 1917. There are cartoons of him in Spain when he was dancing it for the last time, um, and it's very definitely this costume that is being portrayed. But we have two costumes in our collection. We have this one as well. Obviously a remake, probably remade about 1914. Um, it's less uh, uh, elaborate, uh, much, much less elaborate in many ways. Um, it's obviously hardly worn, but it has been shortened, as is very obvious there. There we are. Um, there we have Nijinsky wearing his costume. And the only images we have of anyone wearing the other costumes is Idzikovsky. But we have a problem, because Idzikovsky doesn't join the company until 1915. And by 1915, the costumes had changed. So quite what he was wearing it for, I don't know. Um, and whether, how much he danced in it uh, is also problematic. But for 1915, a lot of the repertoire is remade in terms of costumes. It states in the programmes. And this is the run-up to America. So this is the new costume that is made you can't see it very well, uh, but it's shorts, knee-length shorts, um, and then sort of quite full, and a turban with feathers instead of the neat little hat for the prince. Um, in the, in the um, festine, they changed it so that the, the man was the prince, not the bird. Um, uh, so, and they, they sort of actually, Fax totally redesigns it as the Enchanted Princess um, for uh, 1915 and then for America. So we've got these new costumes coming in, um, but very quickly, and I'm sure Idzikovsky, when he took over the role uh, officially, said, I'm not wearing that. Um, and so they make what I call his romper suit. Um, <laughs> which, first of all, is this sort of this is basically red colour. 
um, and then later turns into blue. When the sleeping princess is mounted, and he's still doing the role, although Banks uh, designs another elaborate costume, Idzikovsky quite obviously says, no, I'm wearing my old costume. Um, so they remake it in blue. And that goes on, that costume goes on through um, the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. Um, so we sort of get a sense of an evolution and changes of a costume sort of coming through. But interestingly, it's back to the original headdress. Same thing happens with um, Scheherazade, but right from the start, every, virtually every dancer who is performing um, Zabaida at the beginning uh, gets a new costume, or at least groups of them do. Um, so Ida Rubinstein's costume is there, and that's a 1910 display, so we know that's Bax at that time because Bax redraws these things to the end of time. When Kasavna takes it over, she first of all has this. This is 1911, um, and Astavieva also wears a very similar costume. Um, the next year, Kasavna is in harem pants rather than with the dress, um, so this can only have been worn in that one season, as far as I can see. By the time we get to America, here we have Flora Valles in her version of the costume, slightly adapted, and this becomes becomes what we tend to think of as the costume, uh, the one that uh, is worn by Chernicheva. So I think that what Bax was doing largely was actually looking at his dancers and wanting to make them individually look super sexy on stage. So that real sense of using the dancer and working alongside them uh, to create a range of costumes. So that one is in the exhibition. So again, with Firebird, the same sort of sense coming in, Kasavna in her original. Again, this is the costume made for America, and so this is uh, uh, um and then uh, Lopokova in her costume. It becomes very much sort of simpler, the original trousers. Of course, um, the whole ballet gets partly redesigned and reworked after the first season. It's not performed for 18 months after the premiere. Um, but I think, interestingly, in terms of anybody who was here and Anna's uh, fascinating paper, uh, one of the things about this rivalry between the two dancers, the dancer taken on really to do the Firebird. That's what the, uh, Diaghilev needed an answer for, a ballerina for. And then finding the Pokova was available. And the Pokova, of course, had danced it. She was the second to dance it. She danced it in 1910. Um, and so he didn't actually need his other dancer. And I think that's part of the, the whole sort of subtext to uh, all those problems. But as was mentioned earlier, this sort of link between the fashion and what's happening on stage, and this is one that I love. Um, so Paul Poiret in, in 1912, uh, creating his uh, sorbet, his sort of wired uh, sort of dress that looks often referred to as a lampshade dress, um, but I was intrigued when I started looking at um, Firebirth and see actually two years earlier, Golovin had created the same basic shape for the knights. These are the characters who come on at the very end of the ballet, those of you who are familiar with uh, the Firebird. I always think of them as the lads from, lads from the Royal Ballet School uh, because that's who they are when it's performed in London. Um, but they are basically the ossified creatures who were uh, in the setting of the Golovin version. Um, and the whole problem was that that was Kashchai was trying to turn Ivan into uh, a stone. Um, uh, and that's what's sort of going on in the earlier part of the work. Uh, but this whole sort of shaping coming through. And I think it's very much a symbiosis. It's not always a one-way thing. Um, so the whole fashion for Hari and Pants and everything certainly being enhanced by what people were seeing on stage, but not entirely coming from that. It's the whole elements working together. 
So the classicism uh, coming through uh, in the interpretations with the sort of wonderful uh, Greek-style uh, interpretations of ancient Greek uh, costumes. Uh, these, this is in the exhibition. Um, and one of the things that it's actually the costume worn by Ninette de Valois when she was a member uh, of the company. So there we see her in this costume. But because we, she's dancing it not when it was created um, in, in 1910, but in 1911, but in the 1920s, the fashion for shorter dresses coming in, they've taken up the costumes. Um, so one's getting that sort of sense of a contemporary take on an established costume coming through. With Afternoon of a Fawn, um, the costumes in the exhibition from Canberra are from the 1930s. They are remakes. Um, the names inside them confirm that they're worn in the 1930s and 40s. They are totally different shape from the originals, which are much straighter, um, as you can see. And they link up very much with, for example, the Delphos of Fortune, um, the same sort of interpretation coming through. So again, stage and um, uh, street having an overlap. Um, and I put that in to remind you that this is not a costume designed by any stretch of the imagination, although it is always described as one. It is an illustration. It encapsulates the ballet, it titillates the audience, those wonderful low-slung tights, totally different from what they do. Look, he's up his neck. Um, uh, and, and in fact, I, I, there are no real designs, I think, for um, uh, that for Median and Fawn. It's all related material. Um, but it's sort of quite intriguing what we do have. But looking at um, Dieu Bleu, there's a, a costume behind, so you can see some of the details of the fabric. The paint now very much sort of worn away, as you can see at the far side. Um, and this is a problem. A lot of the costumes are faded, where they should be a strong gold, strong glittering elements coming through. They're tarnished. Um, so yes, the picking up on the, the elements from um, Anka Tom and this ballet was, it was a disaster, but it, has, it was, has six performances in its first season, not just six performances. It does go on for quite a while. Um, it's so old-fashioned, you can't believe it. It's putting old-fashioned 19th-century spectacle on stage. There's hardly any dance. Um, it's, it really is a, a repeat of what the Parisians were used to. Forget about Swan Lake, forget about Sleeping Beauty. The Parisians didn't know those ballets. Um, it is actually conforming to what they knew, and it's absolutely celebrating uh, the French Empire. This is uh, the French colony that's being celebrated in this. So Diaglis was very clever in terms of what he does. He relates to his audience. But there are mysteries about Dieu that exercise an enormous amount of time. Uh, why are there two costumes for uh, Nijinsky. Uh, Nijinsky is certainly photographed in the Canberra costume, not the London costume. Um, but again, there is a quite a gap between the first performances and subsequent performances. My hypothesis would be that a new costume was made in the interim. Certainly the original costume, or one that looks very similar to that original costume over there, is also worn by Fokine. So we can't say that we've got a Fokine costume and an Ajinsky costume, which would sort things out nice and tidily. Um, uh, 
quite often I would use an argument relating to the wooden figures that were created by Beaumont in terms of costumes being copied, but the early figures are created during the war when there was no access to the actual company and costumes, um, and therefore uh, Allison was dependent on photographs and uh, designs uh, as reproduced in the souvenir programmes. And so we haven't got, we're not going back to source in a way that with the later ones we can, um, where we know that there was this real sort of study. So uh, I think this is an unsolved mystery, but if anyone wants to shed any light on it, I'd love to hear from us, and so would Canberra. Uh, Right of Spring, um, yes, we have some of these costumes in the exhibition. Um, There is the receipt for them being made in St. Petersburg. I'm sure that uh, Rurik must have been on hand to deal with these very elaborate um, decorations. The designs are not designs that a costumier could really work from. They're very much more illustrative images. But we have uh, shoes that are all decorated, uh, elaborate ribbons for the sort of cross-gartering. I've had recently at a a conference had somebody saying, oh, look, on the photographs, they touch up the ribbons. I said, have you looked at the ribbons? They've got very bold edges to them. They've not been touched up at all. Um, So really it's important to actually be familiar with what we are are looking at. Uh, The costumes are made in wool, so they are quite heavy. I understand there was a heat wave in in, uh, May, June, uh, when the premiere took place, uh, which would have made them pretty uncomfortable to wear. But they are not very innovative in terms of their shape. Um, They're our standard Russian peasant shape. Um, And in terms of sort of freedom of movement, they're not very difficult to, to, to dance in. It's only the fact that they are made of wool. The men's costumes are more complex. Um, sorry, there we are. So again, background, that's for, the background is a costume for uh, the second scene, one of the ones that's been worn here, and this is one that would have been worn with this um, belt. Uh, you see Rurik's fascination for archaeology, the Scythian discoveries at the time, um, and he's drawing on that. Um, so this belt is on the wrong costume in the exhibition, I admit. Um, in the plaits, there is a silver thread that's woven in. That would have picked up the light, particularly when they were turning. Um, I had the privilege of being at the Champs-Élysées this week for the uh, uh, centenary performance, uh, and it was the Mariinsky uh, performing the Hudson um, Archer revival. Uh, and instead of a, a, a little thread of colour coming in the wigs. They were really black and white. They looked either like zebras or Cruella de Bill gone mad. <laughs> Sadko uh, was the ballet that was created to bring to Russia uh, and to, uh, to bring to America uh, and to really give America a taste, uh, a new taste of the Russianness that was so much in fashion. Um, They're not worn a great deal, which obviously helps with their survival. Um, The trousers that go with this costume, which is ours, uh, the trousers are in the collection in Stockholm, uh, which is slightly frustrating. Um, As these costumes were divided up for sale, they ended up in different places. Uh, The hat here should be folded over, but for conservation reasons, we display it in a slightly different way. Uh, You've already seen this costume, but you didn't see the back. Um, And one of the important things, I think, is the design that that, um, uh, Larionov created, um, realising probably that, or Elsa Dancer complained and said, no, I'm not wearing it over my face, but it's transferred to the back of the costume. But this is one of those wonderful examples where you can see a costume that actually was designed in 16, being made in 1921, but very much following 
changing the patterning. Um, but interestingly, obviously, the length of legs not quite so long, so having to adapt uh, to make them fit. But these wonderful sense of asymmetry coming through in the costume that is displayed so you can see all the way around it. Parade, um, not uh, when it comes to the costumes, uh, there's nothing terribly radical about most of them. Yes, uh, the cubist managers are very, very innovative. Uh, but for the Chinese conjurer, essentially, Picasso was copying uh, what Chinese conjurers wore in the music hall uh, rather than doing anything terribly new. So the idea of the rising sun, most of the Chinese, uh, conjurers were Chinese because it made them exotic. And so that's what they're picking up on popular entertainment. Um, I have been told by by one of Massine's uh, assistants uh, that this decoration partly represents the intestines. Um, in the ballet, the Chinese uh, conjurer swallows an egg that then comes out of his foot, but he describes how it goes through him. Um, so that's basically uh, what that, that uh, sort of weird and wonderful element is. Uh, this part... Of, oops, sorry, wrong thing... Um, this part, this part of the costume has had to be remade, um, but by and large, with the V&A, we do we really do do conservation. Restoration is the last minute, uh, and reconstruction is the last minute uh, when you have to do it. But uh, the costume for the little American girl bought off the peg. Picasso did a lot of drawings for it, went into a shop and bought it. Um, Picasso's great ballet. Sorry, everyone who loves Parade, is Treecorn. Um, this, is, this is the one that shows Picasso as a really good theatre designer and wonderful for the wardrobe as well. Uh, what I find fascinating is that you get the back of the costume, the front of the costume, the detail of the epaulette, the cape separately. This is the sort of material that costume makers really like. It's telling them exactly what they have to do. Um, the costume maker doesn't have to work out for themselves what they're going to do at the back. Um, but, of course, with costume, it also includes wigs. So here we have uh, green wigs, and they were coloured wigs in this. We do actually have the receipt that talks about the wigs and does indeed say Idzikovsky, and we've got the sort of the green wig there. Jean du Rossignol, um, uh, the reluctant Matisse um, being bullied by Diaghilev to create a work. It was terribly important to Diaghilev in 1920 when he was going back to Paris for the first time after the war. He'd got ballets by um, Picasso. He'd got ballets by Deron. He wanted the hat trick of the three who were the great artists of the day, contemporary artists. So he had to have Matisse as well. Uh, by and large, when fine artists are working for theatre, they're much more interested in the sets than the costumes. Uh, Matisse is an exception. He really very quickly handed over sort of putting the set together um, to the scenic artist, uh, Polunin, uh, and took himself off to the costumiers in Paris where he uh, really supervised the making of the costumes uh, and, we believe, actually painted himself quite a lot of the decoration, which is why these are such valuable costumes. Significantly also with the mourner's costume, he is using cutout for the first time in his art. Uh, so this is really in taking him in another direction. Uh, and by working in another media, uh, it can actually open doors for an artist, give them a wider perspective. 
Je, often referred to as a contemporary work, is really a futuristic work. Um, it's a game, allegedly, of tennis in the future. Uh, this was a, has a curious gestation. Uh, Bax designed the work. Um, I think we can see why Diaghilev said, no, Nijinsky's not wearing that costume. Um, it's not very flattering, is it? So, you know, these trousers are going to be much more flattering. Um, but uh, the costume's actually realised by the House of Pakan. But, of course, Bax was working with Pakan at the time anyway, uh, designing a number of sort of day dresses, fashionable outfits, um, and many of which which actually found a market in America in, in actual fact. Um, and so we know that the, we have got uh, the account books for that year, for 1913, uh, with the payments to Pakan for the costumes. So the bringing together of the fine artist and the costumier um, sort of in one sort of whole sort of thing. So this was a, a, a sort of sporting a ballet on a sporting theme. It's often described as one of the first sort of contemporary ballet. I'm sorry, rubbish. Uh, if we all knew our dance history a bit better, we could make some real judgments. Um, but um, certainly sport, uh, a theme that comes through, uh, and uh, it is only with uh, this ballet that uh, Chanel cl- takes credit for the costumes. So the two costumes that survive are the two bathing costumes that are on display. Uh, La Pelouse, worn by Sokolova, as you see over there, and then this is for one of the gigolos. This was sold initially, and it was catalogued for years until I came along as being worn by Ninette de Valois. Um, but when I said, what's she doing wearing a gigolo's costume? Um, so we have recatalogued it. Um, I think that was sort of wishful thinking on someone's part. The funny thing is, it'd been on display, and she never commented on it. Um, I do know that there were opportunities when women did take on male roles in, in the um, uh, Ballet Russe. And this is not only Nijinska, assuming some of her brother's roles, for examples, but also called a ballet. Um, sometimes some of the women had to play the boys in uh, Prince Igor. But I've put alongside it an actual on-the-beach um, photograph, so you get an idea of actually what beachwear really was like. So there is an artistic element that's come in here. It's not taking Chanel, uh, taking something from her own collections, but it is the whole sort of knitting. I mean, this, this machine knitting is very typical uh, Chanel. Um, I think the men's costumes, these, these costumes work very much better. And my God, isn't this exactly what you see every contemporary dance company wearing now? Um, so there's nothing new. Uh, but Chanel was very involved through the 1920s. She was one of Diaghilev's advisors. Um, he would often refer to her for costumes, and she did contribute to a number of other works. So there is the costume she designed for uh, Danilova for God's Going Begging. Uh, and to keep um, the house party, Les Biches, up to date, um, Dubrovska, when she took over the role, was asked to go to Chanel's studio and pick out an outfit that she felt would work. And if Diaghilev approved, that's what she would wear. So this is actual fashion being put on stage um, for those, um, as we were told yesterday, naughty girls. Um, and then, of course, uh, her final contribution was to rework the costumes uh, for uh, Apollon Musagette, so Apollo. These are the originals. And um, although there's a lot of debate on this, I do think that the designer, Andre Bocan, is actually responsible for them. They're not actually white. They're quite li- they're lilac-y. But there are drawings by Bocant, um that came to light in exhibition recently in Japan um, that really do suggest that he was involved in the costume side um, of the production, not just taking elements of the set. But this is what a year later Chanel comes up with. Um, so very much more flattering to the dancers um, and much 
more, you know, sort of malleable in terms of it's in the jersey fabric, um, quite nice for the dancers to, to work in. And there we have Les Biches. Um, significantly, um, this is the, um, the garçon, uh, the role that's played by a woman that almost certainly represents a, a boy. Um, and very typically uh, taken the ideas that come through with Laurenson's paintings as well. This is the alleged design. It was made uh, with a much longer um, uh, sort of jacket, first of all. Diaghilev himself picked up the scissors uh, and cut it short so that we could see the arabesque clearly. Um, Nemchinova, who wore the costume, said that she felt naked, remembering dancers were as you've seen from most of the, the costumes I've shown you, used to being quite well covered up. So Diaghilev advised her to go and buy a pair of white gloves. <laughs> now, we must remember, people wore gloves, you know, normally, so to wear gloves you would feel dressed. But there's a lot more to it than that, I am sure, because when you look at the choreography, there's lots of movements of the hand that come by the face. If they're in white, she's got white gloves on, it'll show up the movement more. So I think this is all a very much more complex thing uh, than just sort of a psychological, uh, making her feel more comfortable. So sort of innovations coming through and this sort of picking up on modern dress um, and certainly with Lebiche trying to keep it up to date, as I've shown you. Um, with Pavel Chernyshev, we just have the, the costumes for in the exhibition for the corps de ballet, um, these sort of crinolines echoing of the past, totally anonymous. The dancers all wore these fencing masks except for the um, soloists. But for Dubrovska, the all-over body tights, totally revealing in white, uh, again must have made her feel very naked. Beautiful dancer, beautiful woman. Um, she could actually take it. But um, this really sort of revolution of the costuming, um, you had had, of course, all-over body tights. You've had leotards, you've had um, used in circus and in popular theatre, but not really in this sense, it's sort of in sort of the high art. Just a few more um, uh, productions that show those sort of modernism. There's that costume I showed you right at the beginning here in Pardassier, worn by Chernyshova. Um, so this was um, a Russian constructivist work. Um, with Pastoral, it's making a film. Um, and these are actually, they're not actually skirts and, and, and jumpers as they appear to be. They're all in ones, but they're painted to look like that. Um, but very much sort of contemporary dress for the village people and the, um, the filmmakers. And then these extra this extraordinary development um, for La Chatte, um, really sort of sculptural costumes coming in with the headdresses and everything, the use of plastic. Um, so this is whole multiplicity of modern, ideas being put on stage and just finishing uh, with Laval um, which is the penultimate work for um, the Ballet Russe um, again uh, with de Chirico I think a sense of real involvement with making the productions again the designer getting the benefit of having the detail of the back of the costume uh, on this design so this is a really wonderful sort of set uh, material to give to somebody when they've got to create uh, the costume itself but that, I think, brings us to the end. I'm sorry, it's a bit of a race through. Um, there's a great deal more I would love to tell you um, about uh, the costumes. What I would say is go and look at them. Go and look at them closely. Quite a number of them are on open display, so you can see them really well. 
don't be tempted to touch. Um, I know it is tempting. Um, but uh, it is an opportunity to think about um, how people wore these costumes, how they moved in them, as well as how the artists really sort of revealed the body uh, and revealed moving sculpture, in some senses, on the stage. Thank you very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.